today on Fuzzy Logic. We are talking sense, and uh, not the sort of senses like sight, seeing, and hearing, and uh, not the sort of sense like common sense, but we're talking dollars and cents. Yes, we're going to take a look at the coins and the science that's depicted on our Aussie money. Coming up today on Fuzzy Logic. Good morning, Canberra, and welcome to Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday. My name is Broderick, and it's a pleasure to have you with us this morning on this beautiful Canberra day uh, with the multicultural festival going on. It was an absolute pleasure uh, wandering through the streets this morning, hearing some Irish music and Irish dancing, not just on our radio, but in the streets. It's always beautiful to hear that uh, because, of course, multicultural festival means a celebration of all the many cultures that come together in Canberra. It's one of the wonderful things about this city, I think, the amazing varied cultures that we have. Um, and thank you very much to Irish Voice for sharing their Irish culture beforehand. Uh, but now it's time for a bit of science culture as we move into the scientific world today. Well, actually, speaking of cultures, I'm going to start off with some Indigenous culture because the story that I want to share is recently... Searching the internet, as you do, flicking through Facebook, I stumbled across an interesting story about the man depicted on our $2 coin. Now, after doing some digging, I found that the Indigenous Australian pictured wasn't supposed to be one person in particular, but to be representative of our wonderful Indigenous population that uh, lives across this great country. But... If we get technical, the drawing is based off, uh, sorry, the depiction on the coin is based off a drawing by Ainsley Roberts of one Indigenous man in particular. His name is Gwoya Chungayari. And uh, Chungayari was a Walpuri and Materi man of the Northern Territory of Australia who was born in the Tanami Desert just before the turn of the 20th century. And the interesting thing about this man is his history. You know, he's a he's a warrior man. He's an amazing man who kind of lived through some of the worst parts of the European invasion, I think. Um, but it's wonderful that he can still represent his ancestral country on that coin. Um, you know, in the early 1900s, Chungiari was... Uh, uh, started his homelands where he was living started to be invaded as pastoralism expanded during that region um, and during the drought of the 1920s with increasing competition over food and water uh, tensions were intensifying between the pastoralists and the indigenous population and uh, he actually survived the Coniston massacre in the Northern Territory in 1928 um, although the accounts might differ around that, one cl account claims his father was taken prisoner by Constable Murray and then escaped and fled with his family to the Altunga region east of Alice Springs. Another described Chungari as uh, worming his way out from among the dead and dying at Urukuru, uh, Urukuru sorry, to narrowly escape death from a hail of rifle fire poured at him by whites. Um, Clifford Possum uh, Chalpachari's oral account of his stepfather's capture and evasion records that a mounted policeman arrested and chained him up before he carried him round to show everybody at the soakage and then left him tied up on a tree with a big chain and leg chains too. Uh, 
And uh, then everybody went out to shoot all the people and they came back to find him and there was nothing. He'd broken the chain with a big rock and took off uh, to Clifford Possum. So there's a, there's a variety of stories around it, but I think what we can tell from that is Chungiari was a, an interesting man who fought a lot uh, around the invasion of his lands. Um, he then uh, settled uh, at a place called Napaby. Uh, where he made and sold boomerangs that he sold for a pound each. And uh, some sources claim that this is where his nickname of One Pound Jimmy came from. Uh, whenever asked how much one of his boomerangs were, he would answer, One Pound Boss. Uh, in the 30s, Chungiari and his family lived near the rations depot near Jay Creek um, and moved around, but he eventually came to public attention when photographer Roy Dunstan took a striking portrait of him in 1935 under instruction of a young tourism executive from Melbourne uh, who described the encounter as follows. Uh, during a visit to the spotted tiger mica mine out east of Alice Springs, I once met as fine a specimen of Aboriginal manhood as you would wish to see. Tall and lithe, with a particularly well-developed torso, broad forehead and strong features, and a superb carriage of the unspoiled primitive native, he rejoiced under the name of One Pound Jimmy. Now, while that's a, a very uh, dated view to take of the indigenous population, I think that image of uh, Chungiari has come to represent um, the indigenous population as it continues to be seen on our coin. And it's, uh, Chungiari was also the first Aboriginal person to appear on an Australian postage stamp in 1950 and then re-released in 1952. And they sold over £99 million worth of stamps um, in that design uh, until eventually he was put on the $2 coin in uh, 1988 inspired by that Ainsley Roberts drawing. And I just thought that was really interesting that this man that we see on uh, potentially a daily basis on our $2 coin uh, represented there and we know so little about him. Uh, really, just the fact that he does uh, become a representative of our Indigenous populations. And so I thought I'd take that story today and explore um, not the science of uh, Trungiari, because uh, we know a little bit of his story there, um, but I thought I'd explore some of the animals uh, that are on our coins instead, uh, because we do have a wonderful set of Australian coins and... Uh, as I discovered Chungiari's story, I thought, well, I'm sure each of the, the animals that are also depicted on our coins would have a story behind them too. So I decided to dig a little bit and see what I could find. So we're going to make our way through the denominations today from five cents, hopefully back up to the $2, because there is some hidden signs there that I'd like to talk about. Uh, but let's kick it off with the five cent coin. Now, the five-cent coin with the wonderful design by Stuart Devlin, uh, as with all the silver coins, uh, has our echidna on it. And the echidna is kind of a, a walking contradiction in many ways. He's a mammal. Uh, they're a mammal. Uh, but they lay eggs. And uh, they're often classified as long or short beaks, but in reality they don't actually have beaks at all in the traditional sense. They've got long, fleshy noses uh, that can be on the long side or the short. And... Uh, they 
are also called spiny anteaters, but they're not really looking like true anteaters either, and they're not closely related to them at all. Uh, they're spiny, though, and their bodies are covered with those hollow, barbless quills. But the special thing about echidnas is they are monotremes, which are egg-laying mammals. And they're one of only two species, that, uh, one of only two animals that are monotremes. Uh, the other... Well, it's depicted on another of our coins, and I'll get to that in a little bit. But let's look more into the echidna first. Now, the interesting thing I learned about the echidna in researching this was there are multiple species of the echidna. There's the short-beaked echidna, the eastern long-beaked echidna, the western long-beaked echidna, which is also known as the New Guinean echidna. So we do have echidnas up in New Guinea as well. And then Sir David's long-beaked echidna. Now, the Sir David is actually named after Sir David Attenborough. And uh, we're going to hear more from David Attenborough about the animal on the 10-cent coin in a little bit. Um, but yeah, I didn't realise there were that many species of echidna. I thought there was just the one. Uh, but they are pretty rare to find. Um, and uh, quite interesting when you do. I remember when I first saw my echidna, you know, it was one of those animals that I really hadn't ticked off my list at all. Uh, but uh, when I finally saw one, it was so exciting to see. And then it's like quick, pretty quickly shuffled away. Um, but since I've done a bit more uh, bushwalking, especially around the south coast area, uh, down uh, south end of New South Wales, that far south coast, and there's plenty around there. Occasionally I've also spotted them on the, uh, the highway out from Canberra to Sydney. They're pretty amazing creatures, but they are really shy and difficult to see. So one of the interesting uh, bits of news that's actually just come out this week is uh, a new uh, development from CSIRO and the University of Adelaide that are trying to change the way uh, we understand our iconic Australian animal. And they developed an app called Echidna CSI. Now, this is a partnership between a research group at the School of Biological Sciences at the University of Adelaide and the Atlas of Living Australia. Now, the research group, led by Professor Frank Grutzner, uh, aimed to identify echidna populations on mainland Australia and determine if and why they're under threat before taking steps to help the converse conversation, the conservation. Uh, they, I mean, you can try and have a conversation with the echidnas. I don't know that you'll be such have too much luck. But the, uh, the current conservation status of the echidnas, uh, the western long-beaked echidna, uh, so that's the one in New Guinea, and Sir David's long-beaked echidna are critically endangered. Uh, the western long-beaked echidna may have experienced an 80% drop in population in the past 45 to 50 years. And no one can say for sure about Sir David's long-beaked echidna, though uh, its population hasn't been recorded since 1961. But for the other echidnas throughout Australia, we are trying to work out what's going on with their population. Um, up till now, a study on mainland echidna populations was considered unfeasible due to the time and resources required to gather any meaningful data over such a large area. Because echidnas do live all along that east coast, and they're quite cryptic creatures. If you go out specifically to look for one, you're guaranteed not to see any. And, and I can echo that sentiment truly uh, from my experience because it took me so long to see an echidna and I think the first times we were going out to see echidnas uh, 
we were looking for them. We were going out to find them. We couldn't find them. And uh, the, my experiences down the south coast have been the same. I've stumbled upon them there multiple times on walks when I haven't been going out to see them. We've been going out to watch whales or something like that instead. And then, oh, there's an echidna on the path. Yet in the non-whale watching months when I go for a walk, I'm specifically looking for the echidnas and I never find them. Never do. So we're, we're trying to track these echidnas. And this is where uh, a CSIRO project, the Atlas of Living Australia, or ALA, uh, has come in to help. So they're using ALA's BioCollect uh, as the back-end database and data management for their mobile app, Echidna CSI. And using BioCollect uh, is a great way to uh, save the project team time and costs because they're allowing data that they collect to flow seamlessly into ALA where it's stored, analysed and reused. For those listeners who don't know about the Atlas of Living Australia, it is a fantastic resource uh, that anyone can access. You can download the app yourself, you can see it online, and it maps species across Australia, uh, taking data from many different sources. There's a lot of citizen science data on there, and you can submit your own work, but even more importantly, there's a lot of scientific uh, verified data on there too. And so scientists can use this data uh, to understand what's going on in the Australian environment in terms of a huge range of different species. So what they've been doing in this case is uh, they've been recruiting members of the public to record echidna sightings into the database and also mail echidna scat samples, that's echidna poop, uh, to the research team. Uh, can you imagine that, sending poop in the mail? That's what they're doing. Um, and they're also making this project publicly discoverable via the Australian Citizen Science Project Finder. So that means large amounts of data can be collected across a huge area. Um, and, you know, the, the researchers know that by talking to the general public, echidnas are spotted quite frequently out in the wild or even backyards occasionally. So this citizen science project to collect the data is really ideal, um, according to one of the PhD students on this project, Talia Perry. The Echidna CSI app allows people to make records wherever they are, super easy to access, and has a simple user interface. So it's a, a great hook to also raise public awareness of the project and help communication between the research team and their citizen science workforce. What's happened so far? Well, the app was launched in September 2017, and over 1,500 people have registered through Echidna CSI. They've had 850 submissions, including approximately 80 scat samples, uh, have been received from contributors across all states and territories. As I'm reading this deeper, I'm starting to think that maybe the scat samples are sent in by digital photograph rather than sending poop through the mail. That might make more sense. <laughs> Um, of the total 750 submissions, approximately 78% have been submitted on the Echidna CSI mobile app and 22% have been made directly through the BioCollect website. So this is a great project to put the Atlas of Living Australia into a different use. Uh, it's a great way to look at the data coming in in a very visual way to see all the data coming through this interface. The map even allows the researchers to look at data, where data submissions are coming from and they can filter their data through the uh, ALA website. So there's a great range of applications. Now, if you want to get involved, folks, I know we do have Echidnas throughout Canberra. You can download the Echidna CSI app for Android or Apple, and you can start tracking those Echidnas yourself. Wonderful. So that's one way we can... Uh, 
engage with the echidnas and uh, check them out out there. There are plenty around Canberra. Mulligan's Flat is a, a fantastic spot to see them, and you can even see the echidnas start to parade when they get into mating season. We'll have to cover that in another show. But I think it's time to uh, for some change, and uh, change coins, that is. And now I want to tune in to one of the 10-cent coins to hear about the lyrebird. But to help me out, I did mention the wonderful uh, naturalist before, Sir David Attenborough. And this is a clip from one of his BBC wildlife shows with the lyrebird. Let's have a listen. What bird has the most elaborate, the most complex, and the most beautiful song in the world? Well, I guess there are lots of contenders, but this bird must be one of them. The superb lyrebird of South Australia. He clears a space in the forest to serve as his concert platform. To persuade females to come close and admire his plumes, he sings the most complex song he can manage. And he does that by copying the songs of all the other birds he hears around him, such as the kookaburra. It's a very convincing impersonation. Even the original is fooled. He can imitate the calls of at least 20 different species. He also, in his attempt to outsing his rivals, incorporates other sounds that he hears in the forest. That was a camera shutter. And again. And now a camera with a motor drive. And that's a car alarm. And now the sounds of foresters and their chainsaws working nearby. And I can guarantee you, listeners, that all those sounds were coming from a lyrebird on the video clip there. It's it's just an amazing creature to make all these different noises. And I remember running into my first lyrebird uh, just out of Armadale uh, when we were going bushwalking there. And uh, it, was, it was about the right time of year. If you go bushwalking in late winter, you can hear the bird calls of the lyrebird. And you can hear it going through its uh, random repertoire of different calls looking for love. Um, now, winter is the 
best time because that's when the female superb lyrebirds are fertile and males are singing and dancing their hearts out to try and attract those mates. And so for about six weeks, the males actually sing intensely from dawn till dusk. You might hear it at other times of the year, especially if it's raining, but winter is the key point. And the interesting thing about lyrebirds is... Um, they're, they're actually the kings and queens of singing, and not just because they're good at it, but because they're actually evolutionarily the, uh, the original songbirds. Now, this was some controversial research that came out a few years ago from some Australian researchers, um, and what they found was that all songbirds actually evolved from the lyrebird. So the old world birds of Europe and North America are actually a twig off the branch of our Aussie birds. Uh, this research came through uh, from the Professor Les Christidis and uh, they were trying to publish a paper and they kept getting knocked back because their overseas colleagues uh, were ridiculing them saying this isn't true at all, it's not possible, not possible at all. But then eventually in 2002 they were able to confirm their findings thanks to some uh, DNA research that was able to come through. They had fossil evidence backing their claims but uh, this DNA analysis was able to finally confirm Firm their findings in this paper to show that the DNA indicated that all these animals, all these birds, were coming from the same tree from our Australian lyrebird. So when you think about it that way, it makes total sense that it can do all these songs if all these amazing songbirds have come from that lyrebird. So there you go, listeners. That is the story behind our 10-cent coin, the lyrebird. Uh, we're going to get into the 20 cent, 50 cent and dollar later on in today's show. But for now, let's have a little short music break. Money, that's what I want. Well, that's what we're talking about here today on Fuzzy Logic. The time is 11.30 and you're listening to 2XXFM on the 98.3 on your dial here in Canberra, our community radio. And uh, here in Canberra at the moment, we do have the Multicultural Festival on. And 2XX has a stall if you want to call in. Uh, down by the merry-go-round, the carousel there, you can check us out. Come and say good day. Because, uh, of course, this is a very multicultural station here um so yeah go and say good day you can even sign up for a subscription if you want to support our community radio uh but to, at this the moment in this show we're talking about the culture of science and uh joining me to discuss it today having uh, made an appearance at the multicultural festival he decided to pop in the studio is our good friend and presenter rod good morning rod uh good morning and uh i actually haven't got to the multicultural festival yet but uh, i typically do lots of door stops interviews with people while I'm there and uh, all sorts of fascinating people to meet and uh, so I'll be wandering around with my black 2XX t-shirt say g'day if you see me. We, uh, definitely, definitely we have to pop out and uh, I look forward to hearing some of those interviews in a future show. Indeed, uh, but you were saying just before the break, we was, we've played a wonderful clip from the uh, the amazing man, Sir David Attenborough, and uh, you, you name dropped him. You've met the guy, <laughs> oh, old mates, old mates. <laughs> well, uh, minor exaggeration. By the way, his family live here in Canberra, and and you just go to school here in Canberra, so uh, that's uh, a good association for Canberra. But when I, when I say I met him, well, he we we went to a book signing, <laughs> and he signed a copy of one of his books. But he was a really nice guy, and his story, what he told us, actually we told him, we said, come on, man, do some Australian animals. What about the platypus? Yeah, what about the platypus? And he said, you know, they're really difficult. 
they are really difficult creatures to find, indeed. Um, and that actually brings us on to the 20-cent coin now, the platypus on the back of the coin. They're, they're really interesting creatures. These are the other monotremes. So I mentioned earlier in the show that uh, the echidna is a monotreme, an egg-laying mammal. And in fact, uh, the platypus is the only other egg-laying mammal that exists in this world. So both monotremes, both in Australia... Um, and so the platypus is kind of an amazing creature. Uh, when it was first brought across uh, as a specimen, uh, when British scientists laid their eyes on it back in the 18th century, some of them thought it was a hoax. Um, and I like this idea that they thought Aussies were playing tricks on them from the very beginning. We wouldn't uh, do that. <laughs> no, never. Uh, I mean, of course, there's drop bears. They're very real creatures. Um, but yeah, that's right. They thought it had been put together by some sort of artificial means. Uh, and so it was kind of amazing, you know, with the... Uh, they thought they someone had grafted uh, some sort of beak onto the uh, a quadruped and put different bits and pieces together. They had to give it uh, what they said was the most minute and rigid examination... Uh, and so they persuaded themselves that it was eventually a real creature. And it's kind of an amazing creature, the platypus. It, it's uh, got some pretty amazing parts about it. But did you know, Rod, that you can milk a platypus? Uh, does that mean, Boderick, that I can go down to the shop and get myself a caramel platypus milkshake? <laughs> Well, look, I think if you were going to get genuine milk from a platypus, it uh, it would take uh, a bit of time to get it out. It does secrete real milk for its young because, of course, that's one of the uh, uh, the parts of mammals is that it feeds their young milk. Um, and so you can act- the young actually do drink milk underwater. Uh, it's a very thick milk, uh, much thicker than uh, milk that's drunk D- on does land. Does it have a, a nipple? It does, it does, yeah. Very, very small, but uh, the... They can suckle their young um, with this very thick milk. And given that the platypus has a beak, it must be interesting. I wonder how they manage that. Yeah, yeah I, I, I don't have the, um, the details of that one, but I do have the details of another way to milk a platypus. Um, you know, there's more than one way to skin a cat. There's more than one way to milk a platypus. That could be a new saying, but we'll have to try that one. Um, but in this sense, we're actually talking about milking the platypus a bit more like we milk snakes uh, for their venom. So platypus actually are venomous creatures. They have some spurs on the back of their legs that are quite dangerous, and the large spur can inflict an in- excruciatingly painful sting. It's not lethal to humans, but we don't have any way to get rid of the poison so you just have to sit there and suffer. Which makes me wonder why they evolved that mechanism. What was a defence against? Presuming that's uh, relating to a predator? Yes, and I'm not sure um, what sort of predators they're thinking about there with that one. Uh, I haven't uh, researched that, but it's quite an interesting thing that this, what we think of as a cute and cuddly creature, actually has this venom on the back of their legs with these spurs uh, to uh, protect themselves. And... Uh, it's amazing. There's no antivenine for the platypus, so you just have to sit and wait the pain out. And so it's uh, not dangerous to humans, it's just painful. As, as, as Just very, very painful. That's right. Um, but uh, uh, zookeepers at the Australian Reptile Park uh, who milk dangerous snakes and spiders to try and produce life-saving antivenine have also been milking the platypus uh, venom. 
And the reason they're doing that is because universities around Australia want to study the venom to see if it holds any properties that can be useful in medicines. Well, it makes sense, doesn't it? Because they're going to be bioactive in some way and really potent chemicals. So you'd think it has some... Well, a possibly beneficial effect on, 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 for humans, maybe medicine in some way, who knows? That's right. And currently venoms from other creatures have been used uh, to help in medicine. So taipan venom is used to help stroke victims. Uh, Venice, venom from the poisonous lizard, the Gila monster, has been used to help cure diabetes. And pit viper venom has also contributed to painkillers. Oh, now, I'm interested uh, as, a, as a, about a non Australian animal because around the side of my house a couple of days ago we found a, a European wasp nest uh. and they've got quite a nasty uh, sting as well and uh, I got stung once I was anyway it was painful but not really bad but the, the thought of being swarmed by these things I want we did one of the very first interviews I did on fuzzy logic was with Phyllis Bradbury the European wasp expert but uh. The venom. Uh, I don't know much about the wasp venom, but what about the the platypus venom? Yeah, well, I, they're still studying it, uh, trying to work out uh, what properties it might hold. Uh, they're looking into the medical properties there. So this this milking only happened uh, in uh, the end of towards the end of last year. Um, so uh, science research does take time, but it'll be interesting to see what might be found uh, from the platypus uh, venom there. And so it won't mean necessarily that uh, if it does have medical properties that we need to start milking many platypus uh, because they are very hard creatures to fine but what it'll mean is it will give that inspiration uh, to the scientists to help recreate what they find in the uh, naturally we, occurring platypus venom yeah well, then we could synthesize the chemical in that, some way that's right that's right and that happens many times in uh, drug synthesis and that sort of those sorts of areas we use the nature to inspire us and then we see how we can recreate that in the lab artificially they're, they're beautiful animals, and uh, I should say to our listener, you can actually see them. It's not that hard. Uh, if you go to Bombala, there's a, a, quite the wide river course through the, the town there, and if you sit on the banks at, at, at uh, sunset, you can see these uh, platypus pop up. Wonderful. And I tried to photograph one. I had my long lens and everything, but I could sort of understand why, mind you, I'm not even remotely in the Attenborough League, <laughs> not, not on the same planet, but uh, this thing would pop up here and then I'd work and then it'd pop up a few minutes later, 30 metres away. It's, but anyway, wonderful to see them. Mm. And even closer than Bombala, down at Tidbin Villa as well. There's lots of platypus down through there. Uh, I went down there recently to try and spot them. Unfortunately, I picked the windiest day in Canberra to go. And so surprisingly, they all didn't pop up out of the water. They all hid under the water where it was much less windy. So we only saw one on that trip. But I've been told you can see many, many platypus down there as well. One last quick thing I want to throw in on that is uh, we did think there might be one in the little creek over our uh, road from our house, uh, Ginandera Creek. Uh, it's possible because there was like a, a, a hole dug into the side bank. And I thought, I wonder if there's a, a platypus here. But I've never seen one, and I think probably not. But I have seen water rats there. Uh, and water rats is a kind of a rude name for these creatures. They're more like a little otter. Have you seen them, uh, Broderick? I have, I have, yeah. Uh, not in Canberra, but around uh, Adelaide. I they, think I've seen them down there. They're not uncommon around Canberra, and a yeah. long, beautiful animal, white tip on their tail, just wonderful.
Isn't it funny? Because with the name rat, I'm immediately put off, but uh, I'm sure they are lovely creatures. I wish they'd call them an otter. I mean, of course, they're, not, not, they're, they're neither. I'm, I don't know. I don't know anything about the biology of the so-called water rat. Uh, we'll have to look into that. Uh, the, the false names, a rose by any other name, would smell as sweet. That, that sounds like another show right there, Rod. And a koala is not... A bear, indeed. Uh, but let's move on to another Australian creature now. I think it's time to go to the 50-cent coin. Uh, now, the 50-cent coin, of course, doesn't have a, a magnificent design by Stuart Devlin. This is a version of our uh, coat of arms that you can see on there. So there's two animals on there, the emu and the kangaroo. Uh, so let's start with the emu. Uh, second largest bird in Australia, uh, fifth largest bird in the world, uh, behind two ostrich species and two cassowary species. Uh, can grow up to two metres tall, pretty massive birds. Very small wings that they're unable to fly and I'm going to talk more about those wings in a moment. But one of my favourite stories about emus is I've heard from uh, various Indigenous sites that I've visited about Indigenous hunting of emus. And, in fact, this was from uh, an Indigenous guy on the south coast who was telling me about uh, emu hunting. And they used to use the boomerang to hunt emus, but they didn't throw it at them. They used to pretend to be emus with the boomerang. Oh, really? So if you imagine the shape of a boomerang, if you hold it up in the air uh, with one, one end straight up, then the other one comes sort of across and it looks like a head coming off a neck. And emus are naturally curious creatures. So oh. they used to make noises in the bushes and hold up their boomerang and move it about. And the emus would kind of look over and say, oh, what's that? Is that more emus over there? Oh, I wonder. I'll go and have a look. And so they used to literally then wander across to see what was going on in the bushes. And then when they eventually got there, a big whack across the uh, the head with the boomerang on the emu. And uh, there's their meal. Um, so- I, <laughs> that's... Uh- that's ingenious. That's ingenious. I have to confess that I've actually killed uh, an emu once. Oh. Uh, not because I wanted to, but uh, uh, now, is this correct, Broderick, that it's the male that looks after the young? I, I believe it. I, I, believe I don't have that in my facts, so it could be true. I, that's what I believe. Yeah. And we were on a motorbike trek and we were out we're north of Manmari, Lee Creek sort of district. And uh, we're coming to a creek crossing and this emu sort of was in the centre of the road and then it sort of went off to the side and it came back and it seemed to be hesitating. And when I got close, there was a chick. And I want to say chick, I mean, think about knee high. And uh, it had been hit by a car. Oh. And the poor thing had broken leg or something. So we had to, I'll spare you the grisly story Mm. of how we had to dispatch this this poor thing. But... uh, I will say they have a neck like a rubber band. Oh, gosh. Well, let's move on from their neck to their wings. (laughs) Because that might be something. Now, these these, um, birds are called ratites, uh, which are the oldest modern living birds. Um, And while they have wings, um, the emu wings are about only 20 centimetres in length. So they can't really use them for flying. And in fact, according to Parks Victoria, they use their wings for cooling down in the heat um, and flapping. But, 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 uh, 
they're trying to researchers are trying to unlock the secret of why they have evolved tiny wings not just for cooling down and they've discovered a gene responsible for limiting the size of an emu's wing which has also raised the prospects for scientists to see if the same process plays a part in the development of human deformities to see if they might be able to reverse this um So what scientists have done is they've worked out the genes that control the early stages of wing development in both emus and chickens. And the researchers discovered one gene that was only present in the underdeveloped wings of the bigger flightless emu. So they're thinking that maybe this gene is responsible for the underdevelopment of the wing. Now, I'm wondering whether they could use a technique. A little, a few weeks ago, we did an interview on Fuzzy about the CRISPR gene editing technique. And if you inserted that gene into the emu, or you disabled that gene in the emu, would it grow full-sized wings? I wonder if someone's going to do that. Well, uh, that's getting into a whole ethical dilemma there as to what you do with an emu with giant wings. But it would be an interesting idea. It would also be quite scary, to be honest, if we suddenly had this emu just flying overhead. Well, I wonder if it's equipped in other ways to... I mean, just putting the large wings on, they might be useless because there's all the... The musculature, there's the brain development that allows them to control the wings and so on. The the vascular system that, that feeds the, the blood to the system. Uh, uh, curious. Well, to be honest, Rod, I should have read further in my article because now I'm reading along and they haven't played with the emu genes yet, but they have played with the chicken genes. And so they've grown uh, chicken embryos with the chicks with that emu gene that's unique to the emu, and the chickens grew tiny emu-like wings. So this kind of confirms the gene's role in limiting wing size. The next stage of research, uh, the the, uh, researchers are going to undertake genetic rescue by removing the gene in growing emu embryos so they're born with larger wings, but they still won't be flying. Um, The emu would have big wings, but it wouldn't be able to fly because they're a large bird that really can't get off the ground. They Uh, need to be very big wings. That's that's right, yeah. And in fact, again, in the learning style of things, they'd probably, like many of the big birds, like the vultures and the condors, they've sort of learnt that they need to take off from a height. Uh, so if they end up on the ground ground, they, they really can't get back off again. Yeah, and I'm thinking they've got this massive pair of legs as well, mm. and which is they're going to have to carry those legs. So it'd be... It'd be quite a feat, no pun intended. Indeed. indeed. (laughs) But, of course, the human uh, side of things is one of the areas that we're really interested in here and uh, whether it could play a role in uh, looking at whether abnormal activation of this gene leads to limb abnormalities in humans. Which, Which makes me think of thalidomide. And the, uh, the deformed limbs, that, or the limbs that didn't grow properly because the chemical, uh, the, the drug interfered with the development of, the, of arms and legs. I think it's arms primarily in thalidomide, isn't it? Yes, yeah, yeah that's right. So that would be interesting to look at that too, how that one played with those genes. Mm. Sure. Right, let's have a short song break now. And when we come back, uh, we're going to get into the dollar coin. And hopefully, if we have time, I can point out a little bit of science on the $2 coin too. But uh, let's have a little bit more music. 
Ben Folds there with There's Always Someone Cooler Than You. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic right here on 2XFM Community Radio. And uh, today we've been talking about the uh, hidden animals on our coins and the stories behind them. And uh, in the break, we just had a call from our one of our listeners, Jeff, who was talking about the water rats. And he said he'd spotted a few around the Carillion there. Um, and I know there have been some ones recently spotted down on the Kingston Foreshore too. Ah, the Carillion. Now, Jeff... I, I was fishing with my granddad, now this is quite a long time ago, and my brother at the Carillion. And a water rat caught a little carp, and it dragged the carp up onto the rock, and it was chewing the, the side of this uh, carp out. Like, the carp was only quite small, like a handspan size, but the rat must have caught it. So that was pretty impressive. Yeah, I, th- I think we're going to have to do a show on these water rats and discover a little bit more about them, Rod. Maybe get a local uh, conservationist in to talk to us. It's a great idea. But today we are talking about the animals on the coins. There's no water rats on our coins, but if you have a look on the 50 cent and the dollar coin, there is a kangaroo. And uh, unfortunately, we have a bit of a kangaroo problem at the moment in Australia. There, we've just got too many. This is a bit uh, surprising, isn't it? Because it's always we're exterminating them. But uh, in this case, there's an explosion in the population. There is. There is. In 2010, there were around 27 million kangaroos in Australia. But by 2016, this had risen to 45 million. And current predictions put it at around 50 million kangaroos in the country. And it's just far too many for the country to sustain. They're devouring all our grass, causing erosion along fences, and it's just not a sustainable population. Now, Broderick, can you correct me? But I think there's two main species, the eastern grey and the red kangaroo. Is that right? That's right, yes. Yeah, and I, this uh, the article that I have hasn't actually specified which species of kangaroo. I think we're looking at the population as a whole here on both species. Um, but it's it's an interesting one because the in the 2000s, when we had one of our worst droughts in Australia... Uh, Many kangaroos were dying from hunger and dehydration because there just wasn't the food to sustain them. Uh, so between 2006, uh, the number dropped to 7 million. But then by 2010, it had jumped back up to that figure of uh, 27 million. So 20 million kangaroos in four years. Um, this is why we need those programs that we do have. And they're controversial programs, culling kangaroos. Um, but we do need them there to... to look after the population and we've had friend of fuzzy former fuzzy logic presenter dr ian mcdonald whose phd research project was on contraceptive uh, contraceptive devices for kangaroos and he told us that they in his research they hadn't been able to make one work yeah it's very hard to you've got to deliver it to the animal either through their feed or you've got to inject it uh, and then you've got to find something that's going to make it through the the animal's body and actually uh, suppress reproduction. Mm. Yeah, so it's it's a very difficult thing to deal with, and currently one of our best solutions, unfortunately, is culling. Um, and scientists certainly do uh, talk about culling the animal in the most humane way possible. Um, but then the other thing we have to think about is what we do with that meat too. And it's... Uh, you know, time to, for us as humans to start thinking about what we actually do with that and whether we need to be, you know, putting more kangaroos on the barbie and uh, using that meat for, for better purposes. Well, uh, I'm not sure of the latest news on this, but I recall when the uh, culling, and they're highly contentious, the culling, and none of us want to shoot kangaroos. I don't like that idea. 
but I don't like the idea of them starving either. But I recall that in Canberra, with major culling, the, uh, the, the carcasses could not be used because of the legislation. I'm not sure whether that was for human or animal or pet food consumption. Yeah, and I, I do know that as well, and I think that's something we certainly have to look into as a country because we have uh, this abundance of kangaroos here and there's no point just shooting them all and letting it go to waste. So what can we use that meat for and how, how can we uh, use it in a and create a sustainable uh, future here for both the kangaroo population and for our meat well, consumption we, we too? We eat all these foreigners, don't we? We eat pigs and sheep and cows. Yeah. Uh, we should be eating more roux. All right. I've got three minutes left, Rod, so I'm going to jump to my last story here. I wanted to tell you some hidden science uh, behind the $2 coin because at the start of the show uh, we were talking about the story of uh, Chunguyari, uh, the indigenous man who's depicted on that coin. But, of course, also on that coin is some stars. And these stars are in the formation of the Southern Cross. It's a famous constellation in this great southern land of ours. And just recently, uh, we gave one of these stars an indigenous name. Really? Yes, indeed. The smallest star in the Southern Cross previously was uh, called Epsilon Crucis, which is a bit of a boring title. It literally means the fifth brightest star of the cross. How boring is that? So... The International Astronomical Union has now announced that it will be given a new additional common name, which is Guinan, the name it has been called for thousands of years by the Waterman people of the Northern Territory. Can you spell that? Can yeah, G I N A N. So it's, this star is about 228 light years from Earth, and in the indigenous knowledge, it represents a red dilly bag filled with special songs of knowledge. This star is one of four of the, the Astronomical Union will now recognise by their Aboriginal names as part of a wider project to give the stars in our sky proper titles. Epsilon Scorpi, located in the constellation Scorpius, has been renamed Larawag. In the Phoenicis constellation, there's now uh, Warren. And in Canis Majoris, the great dog, the star has been named Unagunit. People all over the planet have different names for the same stars, but none of them has ever been officially recognised. So it's fantastic to see the Astronomical Union recognising the that, Indigenous uh, name for this star. That is wonderful, Broderick. I'm feeling a surge of pride. And listeners should know that the Canberra suburb of Girilang is the Aboriginal word for star. And if you look at all the street names in Girilang, astronomers and stars, Canopus uh, and so on. There you go. What a wonderful story. Girilang is a star. It is uh, the Aboriginal word for star, I believe. For our local area, I'm assuming for the, um, uh, oh, the, yeah, Wur- the Wiradjuri population, I think. is. I hope so. Yes. Uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, listeners. Uh, I'm going off the cuff here. Uh, but uh, look. That uh, brings us to a wonderful end and a wonderful tie-up on these coins and the science on the uh, animals and the people on them. Uh, Thanks for joining me in the studio for today's episode, Rod. G'day, yes. And uh, today's Ask Fuzzy is about cracking glass, thermal fracture. Can you crack the uh, windows in your office by sticking post-it notes on it? Oh, well, you have to buy the Canberra Times to see that one. And uh, make sure you tune again next week right here on 2XFM for Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday.